Welcome to the Nod. We're in. We're in. Let's go. Let's go. I think he'll get very upset if you start if I, if the, I did the, intro the entry myself. into yourself. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Nod, a mindful motorcycle podcast. I'm Ben Bowers, and I'm joined by Charlie Borman and Anthony Partridge. Hello. I don't want a pickle. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Once again, we'll be diving into the archives of our own adventures and experiences, catching up on recent goings-on in the bike world, and welcoming another guest into the den of egos. As we venture through the rich world of bike culture and subculture, we will delve into themes of well-being and mental health, as we look to normalise and empower conversations and action around these subjects. We'll be sure to have some laughs along the way, too. This week, we've squeezed another guest into the studio with us, and a big welcome to world-renowned street artist and founder of Rebels Alliance, D-Face, Dean Stockton. <laughs> so I didn't realise you were a Stockton. I, I didn't. I can see you as a Stockton. You misjudged him. You know? Yeah. Actually, yeah, do you yeah. know, we were coming up to do the podcast and I was thinking about when we last spent some time together and it was on this stand-up. The big stand-up. The big stand-up that we did with you know, raise some money for charity. We did this big paddleboard, two-day paddleboard on whatever the canal was called. Basingstoke. Basingstoke Canal. We're all about the detail, Charlie. I know, well, I can never remember. If you watch any of my TV shows, you can realise that I have never <laughs> have an idea of anywhere where I am. But we ended up underneath, I think, the M25. Mm. You were telling us a, a, about your memories of the M25. Yeah, that was kind of weird. We suddenly turned up at a place where I used to paint graffiti. By Fleet, underpass of the M25. Yeah. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. I got arrested there. Yes, you, you were saying that. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised yeah. you didn't get arrested again with these two. You know, it, was <laughs> it was a close call, wasn't it? But it was a close call. But, but, but you've, you've not fallen off a paddleboard yet, have you? No, I've done it a few times since as well. I, got yeah. re- I really enjoyed it. I hadn't been before other than the t- two days warm-up that yeah. I had. And as Ben will um, remind me, I was very nervous about doing it. I was like, yeah. dude, you know I haven't done this before. I'm going to hold everyone up. This is probably your worst idea inviting me. He's like, no, 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 it's all good. You come. So and and then it was you, awesome. You smashed it. Yeah, yeah really it was. Awesome. It was, the, and Annoying there was a lot me. of a lot of people were novice, were, were first timers and stuff. And, and 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 that's the lovely thing about I think paddleboarding, and it's one of those fantastic things if you go off with 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 a few friends, and and people constantly talk about sort of the mindfulness and spending time chatting with each other and stuff like that. It, w- it was good fun. It was very peaceful, wasn't it? Anyway, welcome to the Nod, a motorcycle Sorry. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a paddleboarding podcast. <laughs> I've written a little intro for you, Dean, because I, I like to write intros. Um, It'll be is it heartfelt? Most Well, it might be totally inaccurate. Just <laughs> stuff ripped off the internet. Oh, dear. Uh, here we go. Perhaps a walking cliche. Dee started on the streets of London with a skateboard at his feet and a spray can in hand, wreaking artistic havoc on the wa- any wall deemed suitable as a canvas. So far, so bad. Fair. Yeah. Artistically, and according to Artnet, uh, he is best known for his distinctive graffiti, stickers and posters placed in various cities around the world. Featuring recurring imagery of celebrities and punk iconography, D-Face's oeuvre, I don't know what that means, uh, is characterised by his bright graphic aesthetic and focus on consumerism and the ways in which it shapes everyday life. Moderately accurate. Fair enough. Right to Artnet. Uh, his diverse range of influences include skateboarding culture, early New York subway graffiti, pop art, and Shepherd Fairy's Obey campaign. Correct. Born Dean Stockton in 1978 in London, England, uh, a report. This is where it gets really good. A reported friend of the famed anonymous street artist Banksy. That's accurate. Accurate. Who is he? 
Banksy. Banksy, can't tell you. Uh, D-Face identity remained a mystery until I introduced you just now. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> until 2008 Dean. when you revealed your name to the public. There you go. That must have been a big moment. It, it was, yeah. I've just, at that point, I felt like I'd done enough illegal stuff but at that point I was doing more exhibitions and I felt like I wanted to talk about my work rather than hiding in the shadow and not talking about my work. Mm. I felt I wanted to legitimise what I was doing rather than hiding and being like, it's illegal, um, we can't talk about it. So I took that step to be front-facing to the camera to yeah, talk about it. He has collaborated with the likes of Blink-182 and Christina Aguilera on their album covers, painted a Formula E race car, and was the first artist to create a piece within Sotheby's Bond Street headquarters in its 275-year history. True, and you know very much about that. I do. I thought that was a good one. Uh, which seems fitting that it was graf a graffiti artist who painted a wall in the building. Uh, and uh, to be the first... I don't call myself a graffiti artist. Oh, okay. I think that's reserved to those people that are painting graffiti. Mm. It's a very specific thing, um, and I love it for being very specific. Street artist is... I don't Makes like sense. the term street artist. I never have. When it sort of started being defined as street art, I don't like anything where it starts being categorised. I think it starts to box itself in or paint itself into a corner. So that felt like a more like a marketing term that had been devised or come up with to categorise a new form of art, a new movement that has used the roots of graffiti, but also references pop culture and skateboarding and subcultures. And it came, became known as street art. Whether I like it or not, it's street art, urban art. It's one of the two. Yeah. And, and yeah, for sure, I'm very much that artist. Cool. But it's not just about art and skateboards. Very much not. Uh, you've been a long-time biker? Yeah, al always. I was taken to school on the back of my dad's bike when I was 7 to 12 years old. Didn't matter what the weather was. Snow, rain, summer shorts, school uniform, cork and leather helmet on the back of my dad's CG, Honda CG125. Wow. And he used to drive along, put his head down, and I'd get the full face of wind in this little... little <laughs> well, there's not that much wind on a 125. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, but at his age, when you're little, it felt like it a felt lot. Like I suppose you didn't get thrown off the back yeah. of the bike. Yeah, the top box on the back. So oh, that yeah, was no, the so that was... <laughs> It was very much the typical... Did you, get the, did you get the bugs and stuff in your face? And, and... We weren't going that fast. You could pick them out of the air. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was my ventures into motorcycling. My friend had a built put scrambler which every now and then I'd get a go on I've really really desperately wanted my dad to buy me a, a little Honda scrambler we didn't have any money he was never going to do that and it wasn't until I got to sort of 15 did I start thinking whoa at 16 I can actually own my own motorbike so I better start than the, the nagging to my parents to get them to buy me one and I was doing I, mean, I had my own sort of part-time job at the time so I was saving every penny I could to buy said motorbike at 16 but my mum was adamant that wasn't happening mm. and to me I was like how can you let me go on the back of dad's bike for so long but not let me have my own bike and I never really understood that until you become a parent and you're like no totally you're not getting your own bike <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? but and my mum was like no 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 you're not getting one and then my dad came home on my 16th birthday and I was like okay get your money to get your savings let's go and look at bikes so I got a DT50 
for some reason he wouldn't let me have a Yamaha Yamaha RD50, which is what I really, really wanted. But he thought the DT50 was <laughs> the a RD, safer version. Well, the RD is a little. There's a little difference between the two, isn't there? So, yeah. so the it, RD was faster, cooler, yeah. way cooler. Yeah. But the little DT50 was a scrambler of sorts, so it allowed me to go everywhere and anywhere, and that's exactly what I did at 16. I was gone. Well, it's freedom, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it suddenly you 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 having to be completely reliant on. Oh, it's amazing. Um, other people to get you somewhere. You were chomping at the bit to get your license so you could you could be free and get a car mm. and, and, and get the hell out. But nowadays, like there's the kids are like twenty, twenty one, twenty two, don't even have a license yet. Just... Yeah, but I, I think I think nowadays, I mean I, I look at my kids who are twenty five and twenty six, and my twenty six year old has only just got her driving license. It's a lot of it's to do with cost. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And just to take your motorcycle license is five or six hundred quid. The the forward facing future is that people won't generally want to own. I think we're stepping towards that now already anyway. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I know from owning a bunch of motorbikes, it, they're, they're a pain in the ass to the most part. As you mm. we, and we all own vehicles here that don't get ridden, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, what the hell am I doing keeping that thing? I love it, but I don't use it. Mm. And I think that's... I haven't got there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> but, but you, there you were, 16 years old, Shouting at my yeah, parents, shouting, listening shouting. to the Dead Kennedys, being like an angry youth. <laughs> shouting at my parents, running outside, jumping on my bike, doing a donut in the front drive, and off down the road. And my mum being like super upset, thinking she's I'm not going to come home or worse. I'm going to get crash or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I was I was I wasn't a handful, but I was a handful. You know, yeah. I wasn't going too far off the rails, but I was going far enough. My mum had given up hope but still was very much trying to send me down a route of education. My dad had given up hope when I was 15 and was like, you need to get a job. Mm. You know, and, and again, his generation, he was working when he was 15. His grandfather, yeah. you know, lied and, and went into the Navy age 14. Um, yeah, yeah. So for him, why would you not start working at 15? Especially mm. if you didn't show signs of being academic. Mm. I was always artistic, but for my parents, they didn't want to admit that that was a possibility that I was going to try and go down that path because they didn't know what that looked like. It was completely blank. There was no, oh, you can get a job in design. You can be an illustrator. You can be an artist. They just sort of declared it as, oh, he's not academic. He's stupid. But a lot of that back then, as being so old as you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but you you know there wasn't there wasn't. Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and 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 and, oh, and the nineties, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, we didn't we didn't know uh, about the other jobs. As yeah, yeah. yeah. We, you either you were a policeman, uh, a garbage man, a doctor, a nurse. Well, you, exactly. You know what I mean? There was only was so many th- jobs, careers. My mu- in my mum's we mind, she to. was like, "You are either you work with your hands or you work in the city. Ideally, you're a doctor, a lawyer." My dad was like, "You should be in the army," you know, because they're things that they could yeah, yeah. tangibly understand, understand and, and connect to. When you were in school, did art come easily to you? No, I mean, not it, at all. It wasn't something. No. Was it? Art when I was at school was being taught in a very old-fashioned type of way. Where here's a bowl of fruit. You need to, you know, paint right. that, draw that, whatever yeah. bowl of fruit. There's a still life. There's an object, and I didn't really connect to that. It didn't feel relevant to me. I just wasn't great at doing that anyway. I really enjoyed art, and I really enjoyed design technology, CDT, making stuff. Mm. But I was never, that was never like the thing I excelled at. The thing I was really interested in was skateboard graphics, album cover artwork, um, and those things that I saw within those magazines and, and, mm. and on the front, front of records. I wanted to be a good skateboarder because I thought I could then do my own board graphics. Yeah. Motorcycling at 16, you were, you were painting the streets. Did that, was that an opportunity for you, you know, with a 
spray cans and a rucksack on your back on the bike? Was that- it was more connected to the skateboarding. I was yeah. skateboarding around London. I was going to spots that had graffiti. A couple of the guys I was skating with were also graffiti writers. And it kind of went hand in hand. It was, I wasn't trying to be artistic in that. It was more like catching tags and, you know, a very basic level of what I consider graffiti. And maybe the core level of what I consider graffiti. Which I was going to say, you know, graffiti is, uh, it's your, your name or your, your tag, right? Yeah. I've got a couple of friends that are graffiti artists. Mm. And, and if, you know, they get called a street artist, they're like, no, 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 no. no, no. This, all I do is graffiti. And it's like, you know, it's their tag in, in yeah. many different ways, but it's always numbers and letters kind of, and it, that's it. it. It's, it's just about repetition, yeah. getting it out there, getting it in people's faces. The more risk spot, the more visibility, the higher the kudos of it is. Mm. Um, and so it was that for me in the early days. I didn't really have any aspirations to do anything more than that. Um, and I enjoyed that. You know, I had various tags that were all awful, but it was just part and parcel of that. So it didn't really come with, that came with skateboarding because it was just, for me, it was associated. I'd get the train, you know, to whatever skate spot and I'd get on the on the underground and you'd see graffiti on the on the subway car, the mm. underground cars, and then you'd see it on the track sites, and, and it was the, you'd get to the skate spot and there'd be graffiti at the skate spot and people painting. So it was all like a merge of, of that visual language, you know, skateboard graphics, punk bands, graffiti. And so my mum again was like, like, you've got to have a higher, you know, higher education. And my dad was like, get him a job. He can come work with me. And my mum was like, no, 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 give him another chance. So I actually ended up getting onto a course to do photography. And I did much the same thing for two years. Studied photography, took some average photos, chased girls, got high, rode motorbikes and got to the end of that applied to do a degree in photography and then realized that I was a terrible photographer you know <laughs> the people who'd really really wanted to be photographers and had really committed their time to being a photographer and I was probably committing 20% of my time to being yeah. a photographer hmm. so at that point my mum was like beside herself my dad was like livid and I was like this is my last chance so I phoned around all the colleges and found a college that had an animation course that had places and they said bring over your portfolio so I like scurriedly put my portfolio together which was drawings graffiti photography stuff put it in my um, in a little A3 portfolio put it on my back rode over on my little motorbike had an interview with the guy who was amazing and he was like yeah you've got a place and my mu- I went back and told my mum she was like I don't believe you you're lying and I was like, no, 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 I've got a place. And she was I've like, until the... In, the... in the smoking, in the smoking exactly. cubicle. <laughs> I got a place for doing nothing for two years again, mum, weird. Um, she was like, until the letter comes through the front door, you have to get a job. So I worked on a building site for, for three months and had a wicked time doing that. And then the letter came through and I, off I went to do animation. It turns out when I started studying the animation course, it, the course was all together with graphic design, illustration, animation. And then the teachers, the tutors there actually said to me, oh, the thing you're really into is actually illustration, graphic design, not animation. You should Mm. sort of focus on that. And it was the first time anyone had ever explained the things I was into, Mm. what I was inspired by, and that maybe there was a career path. And at that point, it was like the touch paper had been lit and I was, I just spent 100% of my time focused on that. Everything else went to the wayside. Hmm. See, when I, when I was a kid, that's that's that that was what I wanted hmm. to do. When I was in when I was in high school, I want I was my goal was to work for Disney. I wanted to be a, a do computer animation. Just when I graduated, my art teacher 
she does, they do um, like a summer school for adults at the high school. And so she asked to borrow my portfolio and it'd be, I'd had my port like th- all through years of high school. I had like everything from charcoal to paint to oil, the water, ba- you know, everything I've done, done my whole kind of high school portfolio was, was there. So she wanted to take it so she could use it to show the classes. And I went back to get it so I could apply to colleges and she'd lost it. Oh my God. Really? Uh, yeah, like two, two and a half years. Why of, of are we not surprised? <laughs> um, and <laughs> again. Uh, it just, of course it is. And then my, my dad's like, well, I guess you're coming to work with me. And, uh, and that's when I, uh, you know, I started a tool and die apprenticeship and, and, uh, and kind of went that way instead of going the yeah. academic route. It could easily have gone that way for me. Mm-hmm. It really, but I mean, you, my, I, you know, my mum was absolute belief in me doing further education and I, at a time in where you could just keep going. Do you know what I mean? I just kept reapplying. Now you don't get that option. And it was all paid for, you know, it was awesome. I mean, my parents were like, well, you know, you can live here and we're, Look after you, but the college was free. Free, yeah. I know. So I could it's just do whatever now, I wanted. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that now, and we're just not getting people through because mm. no one can afford to do it. I think I was very lucky and fortunate that a my parents supported me, and b I kept on being able to go through that system to find a place and the thing that stuck. And it, it took me some time. And was that where you started to find your style? And yeah, I was always. Your it was always happening. It was always going on, but it was just that I didn't really have. The, you know, in photography, I didn't have the ability to focus on that. So it was at that point my own time outside of that. Whereas then, when I had two years to do it, I could do whatever I wanted. So it was like just experimenting and finding some form. And I got two job offers and. I thought I'd take the job, win the smallest agency because I thought I could learn the quickest in that agency. And that was my beginning of my career in, in advertising. It was design and advertising. And all the time I was then like, okay, I want to have my own thing going on where there is no one telling me what it can and can't be. There is no brief. There's no client. It's just me doing whatever the hell I like. And the, the only platform I had was to, by putting it back up in the streets. So I was like... So you were still out... Yeah, spray so that, painting and actually, through that, that point, whole time. At that point, I hadn't done anything in the street for some time. You know, yeah. whilst I was going through college, it wasn't really, I wasn't active in any way. And it was only then when I was like, I'm frustrated at work, do I need to have a, an outlet for it? And I'm like, okay, let me look back at the things I really love, skateboarding and graffiti. Let me try and combine those two things together and do something that I realise maybe appeals to more people than less people. I mean, I love graffiti. And it's still as rural now as it was then, and it's super pure for it. Um, but I've realised my mum hates graffiti, you know. So I was like, maybe I can do something where it has a wider appeal. <laughs> and I was like, I come up with these weird dysfunctional characters that have this own world that's in my head, and off I go, and I'll start putting them up in the street using you know stickers and posters, and you know you start with a small sticker that's hand drawn, and you're like, okay, I can only draw so many of these of an evening. How do I make more? Okay, I'll teach myself how to screen print. So then I started learning to screen print or screen printing in my loft, exposing the screens, washing them out in my bath. And then I was like, oh, wow, I can print, you know, 10 stickers on a sheet and I can do 100 sheets a night. Wow, yeah. that's cool. And then I can do more. And then you do that and you're like, okay, now I need to make them bigger. And I had all these materials where I was working, you know, large format printers, photocopiers, marker pens, bunt lac spray paint. It was all there. And I was like, I'm just going to rinse the hell out of it. And that's what I did. I just, it was there. Amazing. And you said you came up with these sort of dysfunctional characters that were in your head um, and you often depict sort of dead and, and zombified characters. Where's, where do you think all that's come from? You know, if it was in your head, what, what, 
was that were you facing challenges? Did you feel that you were dysfunctional to create them? Or I, I where guess, does that yeah, come from? I guess I always felt like I was operating on the out on the fringe of society, and that, you know, for even when I was skateboarding with the motorbikes, and I always felt like I was that, you know, the outcast, you know, and it was just I let me have a cute character who represents that, and and you know, for me, I wanted it to be confrontational and questionable and and you know who doesn't love a skull it's you know it's the one thing that levels everybody we'll you know we'll rock back to that it's and that's qu- like trying to question the society we live in mm. everybody seems to love a skull you know there's not it never gets old no yeah exactly it, it, doesn't, I mean? it, it, it just kind of comes back and comes back in different formats well, you know, and death different, is, different shapes you know, skull and, represents you know decade the death you know your skull's only Physical once you die. And it, death it is the only certainty de- in life. Isn't it, it? it represents death and life, and but life, it's also yeah, yeah. physical and metaphorical. Like people mm. are always like, oh, it's oh, is that person dead? See, so I'm like, well, mm. maybe dead to the person, but not actually physically dead. It's kind of a relationship. It's a relationship, but that person's no longer part of my life. That doesn't have to be mm. so so literal. Well, in Mexico, you know, Mexican culture, it's it's all about that, isn't it? About you know, they sugar skulls, skulls, and about about that's part of, of the afterlife and, and yeah. then they come back and no it's very cool it's very cool what you do I have to say I'm very lucky to do what I do you know there's not a, mm. a, there's not a day that goes by where I'm like I'm so lucky to have found this path being on this journey being at the right place at the right time being very persistent in what I do trying to retain the, the thirst and enthusiasm I had back then still today you've been doing this successfully you know you, you make a really good career out of it now and you've maintained that well-being and sort of being at the top of your game for a prolonged period of time where others maybe haven't been so fortunate or have struggled with things how have you managed to to do that do you think that's a really do you think that's a really you know is that intrinsically part of it having you know feelings of being on the edge of society you know not being in the mainstream so maybe not yeah, I think thinking differently to people and feeling like you're not part of something is that I, I, you know I'm I'm con- I, I'm lucky that I've had a career of over 25 years now you know doing this um, and I've travelled the world and I've met the most amazing people and you know I'm really and you know I support my family um, you know very well via an art career which is very very small minority of people are able to do that and I think the, how I've done it is because I just do it what interests me and I try and keep myself interested and I kind of try and keep pushing myself in what I'm doing I try not to be lazy with what I'm doing it would be very easy to be lazy with what I'm doing and just be like I'm going to keep on doing that and try and rethink what I'm doing and I see it in some ways as like a as a band you know I'm like I'd love to be a musician I'm musically inept but you want the same thing you've heard from that band when you've fallen in love with them but at the same time as you want to go on the journey with them where they're experimenting and pushing what they're doing and you hope that they come out with the third or fourth album that you're like oh yeah this is the next iteration of that band that's amazing and so so for me for my work I see it's chapters you know I'm looking at chapters of a book and that's that's the chapter of 2000 that's the chapter 2005 you know I'm working on a body of work now that is is for sure including including pieces that people will reference and feel very that they're very much me but I also want to bring people on the journey of the next evolution of where I'm going to go with it you have to keep on progressing and have to keep on selling art. And it's difficult, you know, and that's also part of the struggle and part of what keeps you fresh. Before COVID, I was travelling a lot, painting murals around the world, and, you know, it felt very relevant. It felt like 
oh, you, you know, you're doing stuff for the public mm. and you're interacting with people from all ages, races, ethnicities. It, you know, it's completely all-encompassing, amazing. And then suddenly you're in lockdown and you're not doing that. And you're like, well, how, does, how do I now relate to the public? Because I'm not the very thing that I was doing that felt relatable has now been taken away from me. And lo and behold, the world has continued and the next generation have found that voice and found that platform because, you know, when I was doing street art, let's call it that, there wasn't the internet. There was just the very early days of the internet and it wasn't social media. So you were getting your voice heard by putting stuff up in the street. And the more effort you put in, the more you put up in the street, the louder you were shouting. And now, if you were going to do the same, you wouldn't do that because you would use social media yeah. to shout. And, 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 but you have to work just as hard. And you have to work really, really and, and harder. 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 You know, to find your, your yeah. space. On, Much on, harder. It's, it's so, hard. so complicated and difficult to have your voice this desire, this what drives you to create the work is to be seen and heard. Yeah, Why it's ego, that, isn't it? It's is it's it? a selfish. Yeah. It's well, always it's a been it's well, always been it? a selfish act. I've only ever done what I wanted to do. Obviously, you paint walls and buildings, and and you painted my daughter's bike uh, mm. a couple of years ago. I've seen a few bikes you've painted, and they're you're fantastic at that. You, you know, but do you enjoy painting motorcycles? I don't actually. They're they're really tricky to to make anything that stands out. Yeah. It's, hard, it's, yeah. it's yeah. really hard. The surface, the the amount of canvas, if you like, space yeah, yeah. is really hard. They generally motorcycles fit to a format that's very tried and tested, which yeah, is yeah. kind of boring. Also, mm. um, I really wish the motorcycle industry would push way outside of its comfort zone, which mm. seems it seems almost impossible to do. And so when you're painting a tank, it's like, uh, yeah, it's a hard structure to paint because it's actually a tr- difficult shape. Yeah. yeah. And then to try and get over that image, very, very hard. It's I love motorcycles. Mm. They are, I've always viewed motorcycles as rolling, movable pieces of sculpture yeah. that you so happen to be able to ride. 100%. And they have always excited. And the thing that connects art, for me, skateboarding, graffiti, and motorcycles is that sense of freedom. Yeah. You know, the sense of freedom I got when I was 16 getting on that motorbike, the sense of freedom I got when I go skateboarding, the sense of freedom when I'm painting in the streets, they are all connected. That And so people are like, I get the skateboarding thing, I didn't really get the motorcycle thing. I'm like, oh, you, have you ever ridden a bike? Because yeah, if yeah. you've ridden a bike, you totally get that sense of freedom. Like, And it's still... Uh, seen as somewhat rebellious, you know. People yeah. are still like, well, it's dangerous. Frown, you know and it's I mean? dangerous. Yeah. But do you find that sense of belonging coming from, you know, as you said, you, you've felt through your art, you were on the fringe of society, that subculture of skateboarding and the subculture of street art and graffiti. Do you find a sense of belonging in the motorcycle world because it shares a lot of those similarities? You know, it's perceived as a subculture, you know, the freedom unites people in a way that very few other things can? For, for me, motorcycling was about actually being in my own headspace with nothing else to think about other than riding a motorbike. You know, you have to commit 100% of your focus onto motorcycle riding because it's dangerous. You know, and then that sense of, like, the wind hitting you and being free, for me, was like, it's almost like swimming in fresh water. It's like almost like cleansing. I'm like, oh, I can't think about anything else because I spend so much time in my own head. You know, that there is no one else driving this forward, what I do, other than me. So, you know, I'm sitting there trying to work out the show, the next body of work, the body of work after that, the other projects I have on, doubting myself, feeling like trying to be confident in myself. And it's just me doing that. Mm. And whereas I get on a bike, it, all of that goes away because I'm just focused on bike, riding bikes. The community, when you ride along, someone nods at you, you're like, oh, yeah, awesome. That's so nice. That's so cool. But that isn't why I ride bikes. I don't, I'm not looking to be part of a community. I, I generally 
go riding on my own. I generally don't turn up at, at bike spots. I mean, I, as you said, we had Rebels Alliance, which was was trying to be the art bike location for motorcycle culture. Yeah, but that was yeah, that's not why I was into bikes. I don't see the biking riding the biking thing as one or the other. I just think it's just you just ride motorbikes, and yeah. if you end up riding with some, a couple of friends, then great. If you if you don't, I mean, to me, it was it was always about riding from work I, I'd spent 10 years painting and decorating and doing jobs that I just didn't want to do but the freedom was as you say to like you, you say is to get on the bike after a long day and ride home and yeah. you get back to your house and, and your mind is clear yeah, and has exactly. that really been your grounder for you I mean there are other things that you've done when you've had low points or really you know doubted yourself if maybe I don't know works that you've released haven't gone down so mm. well or you know you've not been getting the you know the attention that you crave like you say you do this for your ego because yeah. you want people to look at stuff and go wow that's cool and if they're not saying that's cool that must be quite hard to deal yeah, with yeah totally. feeling that's, like you're not relevant that's, anymore that's the self doubt and social media is a great you know great prodder of self doubt yeah. isn't it <laughs> like, well you're um, so analysed and, and such full of lies don't as well. read the comments <laughs> uh, but part of it is you have to just take that on you know you have to read the comments and see what people are saying yeah, and, yeah. and you just have to have thick skin you know yeah, yeah. you have to have that self belief because it's the thing that got you to the place you're at. But at the same time, it's really hard to hear criticism. And I've always said, you know, you shouldn't really hear someone, if someone says that's the best thing you've ever done, mm. but in your head, it wasn't the best thing you've ever done, you can't help but take that on. And that can't, yeah, yeah. that won't do anything other than lead you forward down that path because you're like, oh, that people love that. Equally, if you've done the best thing you've ever done in, your, in, in my head, and then I've, I've put it out there and it hasn't been received in the way in which I'd hoped it would be, I'm likely to not go back over that path. Yeah. So it's really a hard balance to be like, oh, yeah. I thought that was awesome, and then not explore that further mm. because that might lead on to the next thing that is yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic. And but, I, that's the, but that's the thing, isn't it? You've got to have, in some ways, you have to have the ups and downs. And, and, and if you are going to go down that particular path and it's not working, then you, as you say, that's what keeps you going for 25 yeah, it, years. Yeah, and it, suppose, keeps, it, it keeps you on the edge. You know, the, you, the insecurity of knowing whether it's going to be in, in, enjoyed further than your, yourself or your Group, core group of people also the financial insecurity like you never really know you know as an artist you never really yeah, know yeah. you know I'm not at, the, at the, the Banksy point where you know you're doing sales of four million where talking about that uh, for you how was lockdown did you find it frustrating I have a live workspace so my studio is below where I live so I never stopped working. What happened, uh, which had the biggest effect was that the travel stopped you know mm -hmm. so the thing that I was you know, I was on and off a plane every two weeks, a month, you know, going somewhere for a, a, a project, a show, uh, a mural. That all just stopped and it hasn't really started back up mm. yet. You know, that hasn't come back. And, I, and, and at first you're like, oh, this is weird. And then you're like, oh, this is great because I'd always promised myself that time Space. to spend, mm. you know, at home doing the things I wanted to do, focusing on that body of work, spending more time with my kids, which, I've, you know, everyone's promised themselves to do. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Mm. But is there anything... You know, from your time, a piece of advice that you maybe give your younger self, people that have always sat there thinking, you know, there's something I'm destined for, but I don't know what it is. I think the thing that I look back on, and, and there was a, a line literally that I, it could have gone either one of two ways, which was I had a job that's paying me fairly decent salary, but I hated it and couldn't see a future in it, or the future I saw was being like fired when you're 40 and not being in control of your own destiny or the complete leap of faith, which is belief in yourself and your artistry. 
take the risk make the jump and could I take the risk and I kept pausing and stopping pausing and stopping and not having the belief I'm like how's it going to how's it going to how am I going to pay the rent how am I going to pay my mortgage how and you always put life has a tendency of putting those things in the way and actually you figure we have a great mechanism to figure stuff out ourselves you know Mm. and I think you just have to put out positive radiant energy and believe in yourself and take that chance take, take that leap of faith and I look back on it now and I'm like, thank God I did. Yeah. Because it was so close to not happening, so close to not but happening. But was there someone there who who helped you make that decision? One of the guys I worked with, I remember he came over and I was drawing characters and he was like, they're really cool, you should do something with them. And I was like, oh, cool, someone else thinks they're cool. Mm. And my ex-wife, um, she had belief, she had absolute belief. She was like, you got to do this, you should do it now, do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having just that one person that, you know, was like going to hold you up, prop you up should it all fall apart was really what you need. Really yeah, what yeah, yeah. And and also having the belief in yourself that like, I am going to give this 100%. That's really interesting that, you know, you've got to externalise your passion, haven't you? And then find that validation that, that gives you that that extra nudge to go and pursue it. And I think that's the same for everything, you know, whether that's things you want to do or how you're feeling. You know, as soon as you externalise it to someone else, it's... It's addressed there, it becomes real. And then well, the you're, you you're kind of committed it. to the action then. Well, that, that's it, isn't it? The more you talk about it, the more, the more you sort of have to... Got to do it. Yeah, yeah. Have to do it. good. Well, look, amazing. Thank you so much, D-Face, for joining us. Thank it's you, It's been wonderful to get some insight into the world of art. Oh, by the way, uh, for those of you looking online, you'll see our new artwork. Uh, can I get your... Uh, you know, professional opinion. I will caveat that my 11-year-old daughter did it. I think it's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Nod, a mindful motorcycle podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Do make sure you subscribe to get your alerts when the next show is released. Head over to our webpage, motorcyclenews.com forward slash The Nod, where all the links to previous episodes can be found. Don't forget to buy your Nod coffee to drink whilst listening to the next episode. We'll be back next week with another guest from the wide world of motorcycling subculture. Join us next time, and until then, stay safe, be kind, and check in with a mate.